Welcome to Chit Chat Money. My name is Ryan Henderson, and I'm joined by co-host Brett Schaefer. Today is our Thursday deep dive episode where we interview an analyst to discuss a single stock. And today we have on Luke Heller to talk about Wise, the business that was formerly known as TransferWise. Luke is a leading advisor for Seven Investing. Luke's awesome. He's always fun to talk to. He has a lot of experience with Wise's various products. And his British accent is just very enjoyable to listen to. So uh, that that makes for an easy interview. Anyways, before we get to that, today's episode is presented by Stratosphere, the best web-based research terminal for company-specific metrics like KPIs and segment revenues. Stratosphere has clean data for KPIs, segment data that is triple-checked for accuracy and beautiful data visualizations, helping save you the time and frustration uh, that it takes to dig through SEC filings. We've mentioned this before, but Brett and I use Stratosphere every single day it is our own investing home screen and you can use it for you can use it too for free just by going to stratosphere.io i really can't express this enough we love the platform we we're speaking from the heart when we say that we think you should at least check it out um, but it's stratosphere.io and the link is in our show description if you're more interested in the platform stick around after the episode we've got a three-minute interview with stratosphere's founder Braden dennis anyways without further ado here's our interview with luke hallard Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Today, we are welcomed by Luke Hallard. He is a lead advisor for our friends at Seven Investing. This is also a perfect time to shameless plug that we still have a code code going on, code money at Seven Investing. If you're interested in checking it out, if you love this pitch and, and are compelled to see any more of Luke's research, uh, feel free to use that. But Luke, welcome to the show. We're talking about WISE today. Maybe give us a little bit of background. I know we just talked about it before the show, but how did you come across this? Ryan, good to, good to talk to you and Brett again. And uh, thanks for the invite back to the show. Um, yeah, I ran into WISE, WISE PLC, and it's the ticker. It trades on their London Stock Exchange under WISE, W-I-S-E, but there's also a couple of ADRs, and one of them is W-I-Z-E-Y, if you want to buy it in the US. I ran into this because uh, they're a real specialist in international transfers and international banking. I joined Seven Investing actually almost a year ago today. Um, so making, I think, my 13th stock recommendation this month. And we needed to figure out a way for Seven Investing to pay my company in the UK for my time. And the simplest, most convenient way to get set up was to create an international business banking account with WISE. And um, and with that, we'll talk a bit more detail today about how it works. Basically, I now have a US checking account, effectively. I've got a US bank details, super easy, super straightforward, the seven investing to pay my salary to me through that bank. And I love the business account. It was dead easy to set up, really cost-effective to use. Um, so I created a WISE personal account. I now do my kind of international banking personally with WISE. And then I started digging into the company. I thought, wow, this is quite an interesting proposition. And I think it's a pretty compelling investment opportunity. We can talk about why today. 
And for those listening to the show, you may have just, uh, you, you might not have noticed, but uh, Luke just held up his wise card, which we'll talk about uh, here in a sec. But let's talk about the core money transfer business. I think this is a part that pr- probably a lot of people don't know how it operates. So could you maybe explain how Wise's core money transfer business works compared to the legacy system? So let's let's start with this the other way around. Let's talk about why legacy international transfers are expensive, complicated, potentially take a lot of time. So quite hard. Let's say I want to send some money to you guys for some reason. And we've got a UK bank account and you've got a US bank account. Like unless we both bank with the same kind of international banking entity, which you know, maybe we do sometimes, but maybe we don't, um, it's difficult for me to get money to you. So I tell my bank, okay, send a thousand dollars to Ryan my bank will potentially engage with what's called the sender's intermediary bank. So you've got like an extra third party. And then that intermediary may not have a direct connection to your bank. So they'll have to then connect with the receiver's intermediary bank. And then the receiver's intermediary bank will connect with your bank. So actually these thousand dollars are flowing. like They're actually transferring from the balance sheet of one bank to the intermediary to another intermediary, maybe many steps to your receiver. And each of those steps takes time, it's complex, and incurs fees. And actually, you can end up in really weird situations sometimes where um, the fees are a little bit unexpected, and maybe you receive less money than I intended to send you because the fees have mounted up. So sometimes businesses have to send like a secondary payment to make up the, the sort of lost money that's been sent. So it's complex, but that's kind of the legacy banking system. That's what's been sort of born many, many decades ago. What Wise did is just kind of revolutionized the whole thing really very simply. And it kind of seems obvious in retrospect, I suppose, but I think they were the first guys to do this, is they just have local pools of liquidity. So there's like a wise US account, which has billions of dollars in it. There's a wise sterling account, which has billions of pounds in it. And if I want to send a thousand bucks to you, well, uh, wise basically, you know, adjust their spreadsheet. My, my, Entry in the US book goes down by $1,000 equivalent. Uh, the entry in the WISE book in the US goes up. And then WISE can send the money directly to you because they're connected to local payment rails in each of the countries they operate in. So what it means is actually no money really transfers. There's just these two separate transactions in the local countries. And uh, WISE can do this stuff much faster, much cheaper, uh, more conveniently, much more transparently than legacy banks. It sounds, it is funny because you mentioned like that system and it sounds so like, well, why don't they start that way? But it was such a novel concept, I think, when Wise introduced it. Um, can you explain, I guess, how Wise makes money? And then obviously, uh, as as we kind of alluded to with the card, they have other products. So can you go through some of those as well? Yeah. So they make money in a bunch of ways, but what they try to do, and actually part of their mission is to get to zero fee transfers. So they really pride themselves on transparency. So like say you want to do a bank transfer with a you know, MoneyGram or some other, uh, you know, maybe a traditional bank, and often kind of market and say like zero fee transfer. But what they're really doing is maybe there's no fee, but you've got this hidden cost in the exchange rate they actually offer you. So what wise pride themselves on is the transparency. So if you go to Google and you say like how many how many dollars you get for a thousand pounds? Like Google will give you the mid rate. Wise give you that same mid rate, and then they apply a transparent fee to that. 
so they make a fee on the transfer. Um, and it's a very cost-effective fee. Um, but they also make money on customer deposits. So um, one of their other products, apart from just the transfer product, I showed you my card just now, is the Wise account. There's a Wise account for personal customers, also the Wise business account. Um, it's really convenient. Like I have one Wise account with the app. I actually have essentially um, like local bank account number, like a checking account number in 10 different countries. And in countries where I can't have a checking account equivalent now, I can still make payments. I can still hold kind of notional balances in my Wise account. Um, and then, uh, and so that's the sort of transfer product, the accounts product. Um, they've just introduced an assets and interest product within the accounts. So they don't have a full banking license in most of the countries they operate in. Actually, that's a little bit restrictive. It means they can't pay interest, they can't make loans. Well, loans isn't part of their business model, but they do want to return money to customers. They're trying to really um, uh, make it like repeat on cost, make it a really cost-effective proposition versus really any other way of storing and transferring FX. Um, so uh, yeah, so they're doing that now. They found workarounds by offering things like cashback on balances um, and the ability to invest money. So actually just a few days ago, I've taken my kind of business account balance. I've invested it in the MSCI World Index through WISE. They make a small fee um, on that investment. And now my money's invested. I still have all the flexibility. I can spend that money um, and they'll manage the kind of investment because, again, they've got this kind of pool of invested funds across all customers that they're acting as a custodian for. And then there's one other product they offer, which isn't kind of end customer facing. I think it's a real crux of the business model. This is something they call wise platform. So you could imagine this as being kind of, um, you know, wise have got this incredible network for doing high speed, low cost, transparent transfers. Well, now, if you're another business, you can white label that kind of through an API, you can plug into Wise's infrastructure, and then you can offer your own customers exactly the same capabilities. Um, and there's a number of really quite big uh, headline customers they've got, and they're, they're increasing uh, the number of partners on Wise platform quite rapidly. But uh, a, a number of national banks, I think in the US, one of their first partners was Stanford Federal Credit Union. Um, they've got other local banks in many countries around the world they've partnered with. In the UK, Monzo. Um, they're starting to add a lot of payroll and HR partners in the last six months. Companies like Deal, uh, First Base and WageStream, um, Zero, the accounting software. So by, by all these different firms, by plugging into Wise, they can offer their customers a better, cheaper proposition, but also that's potentially a big accelerant wise as they're getting all of those customers' international volumes through their platforms. It's quite an interesting part of the business model. No, that is. And we're, we're going to talk about that later, I bet. But when you mentioned their strategy, it seems their overarching strategy is to be lowering fees all the time as much as they can. And they said over the long term, they want to get them to as close to or at zero, which at first, if you're an investor, you say, okay, well, they're disrupting their own business model. How are they going to make money? What do you think of this strategy? Do you, is there going to be enough scale for them to make money through these other initiatives like cards, whatever? And do you think that gives them scale advantages where no one 
would be able to offer the same thing to the customers, which kind of insulates them from any upstart competition. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I, I think time will tell because um, yeah, they are effectively driving the race to the bottom on fees. Um, and as you say, like they're they're very transparent. Their mission is to reduce fees so that it's eventually free, like that. You know, you'll get the mid rate on a transfer with no fee on top. So you would say, okay, well, they're not a charity. How are they going to make money? Um, so I think their strategy seems to be around building the most cost effective and convenient transfer product for the customers and then just having a ton of convenient add on services where they can generate additional revenues. So a couple of examples today, but I'm sure, you know, they're going to find other things as the business model matures. Um, if I use my wise debit card, uh, I, if I draw more than two hundred pounds a month, I pay a one point seven five percent fee for cash withdrawal. So, like that, that would be say okay. So I wouldn't use my Wise debit card domestically. I'd use my bank account. But there's no fee on on you know any size of withdrawal. But if I'm traveling internationally, that one point seven five percent fee is still actually cheaper than using my regular bank because they're gonna even if there's no fee or a smaller fee on a bigger volume of transfer of withdrawals from the ATM and paying their, you know, opaque VEX rate. So it's cheaper for me to use my WISE card anyway. Um, in some countries, particularly some countries in Europe, it's actually quite traditional to have fees on domestic payments. So WISE can make some income there. Um, interest income has become quite a big part of their business model recently. So actually, now that more and more of their customers, personal and business customers, are holding wise accounts with holding a credit balance. And I think as of the most recent half year reporting, which was September last year, um, wise are holding just over 9 billion sterling in customer balances, which is up 87% year over year. So you know, it's grown quite substantially. And that meant they earned net interest income of 43.5 million pounds uh, in the last quarter. That's quite significant. Um, it's probably actually uncomfortably too much for them. So if you listen to Matt Ryers, the CFO on the most recent earnings call, we're looking for ways to return some of that instant income back to customers. Um, uh, they, they, do, they do earn fees on, um, uh, on account balances uh, for wise accounts and wise business accounts, um, and then looking for ways to return those to customers. Um, and then... Um, uh, yeah, so so you know, so you know, broadly, lots of sort of smaller ways of earning fees as they as they really push the wise account um, and increase those customer balances. You know, it's just going to be kind of a, a bigger pool of money to leverage and to earn income on. And I, I think they're certainly not done yet in terms of finding other ways to generate revenue. Yeah, it'll be interesting too because they're all they are already at such a big difference between the fees at Western Union, MoneyGram, and all the traditional players. And they've taken market share, which today, and I don't remember if this was at the latest quarter, so update the numbers for me if this is incorrect, but they have about 4 to 5% of personal cross-border transfers for the market share just globally, and then they're at less than 1% for small businesses. So the theory is that they're going to have a bigger chunk for, say, that you, know, you had that anecdote earlier for you at 7investing, they're going to get from 1% to much higher because of the low fees they have. Let's say, let's put a scenario out there that five years from now, they're at 10% market share for personal transfers and say 3% for businesses, which 
for any listeners, that would lead to higher revenue, higher earnings, higher net interest income. So it'd be a much bigger business. How do you think they get there? And what maybe we don't have to give a ton of numbers, but what kind of earnings potential or revenue potential is there at that scale? So, 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 so first of all, how do they get there? Um, like it is just a very compelling proposition, zero cost transfers, right? Particularly if you travel a lot or you do a lot of international banking. Um, and word of mouth, like it's, it's going to be all about building additional customers and then getting more and more kind of wallet share of those customers as they do more and more transfers through WISE. Then they'll learn, you know, various fees and income on those, those transfers. So word of mouth is quite significant advantage for WISE. They don't spend a huge amount of money on marketing. They actually get 70% of new customers just through referrals from existing customers. Like even me kind of waxing lyrical about the company now. I've been, you know, just pitching it to friends and family. My wife's now got a WISE card, so have a bunch of my friends. Um, and it means that their marketing spend, they get a lot of leverage on that. And I think if they look across their entire customer base, they're like blended payback. Uh, on marketing spend is three months. So that's, you know, that, that's, that's getting a lot of kind of return on a small amount of marketing investment. So they're going to grow organically, think nicely and consistently, and that's going to build scale. Um, we mentioned wise platform though. I think as they add more partners, because if you're a, if you're a national bank, um, but your customers, some of your customers still want to transact internationally, they're international businesses or they travel a lot. Um, it's complex for you as a, as a sort of smaller national bank like Stanford Credit Union to have the sophistication and the banking licenses and the partnerships to be able to offer anything approximating the speed and the convenience and the cost of partnering wise. So that's why I think we're seeing more and more of these smaller partners coming onto the WISE platform. I think I said like 60 partners today, and that's growing pretty rapidly. I think that's going to become, don't, unfortunately, WISE don't sort of break out the volumes that they do through partners versus kind of directly through their own website. I think we're, we're going to see that behind the scenes, that's quite an accelerant to increasing their scale. Um, and then how else do they grow? Um, possibly moving up into larger business banking over time. But they typically, like their personal customers, they segment into kind of smaller customers transacting, I think less than £10,000, $10,000 per quarter versus larger customers. Where in, in the business world, it's typically smaller businesses that use WISE, not kind of big multinationals. But, you know, if they, if they can offer this capability and they, you can plug into them through an API, um, it's quite easy for a bigger bank to maybe, or sorry, a bigger business to maybe engage with WISE for some subset of their, um, you know, managing their finances. So I think these are all good levers that could help them grow quite significantly over the long term. And just for the listeners, what, like, how much money? What, what's the revenue look like today? Um, just for because I, I, I think people see you know big numbers on the volumes, but just what what size business is this? Yeah, so um, it's a little hard to get into the numbers because if you go, to, like, I know you guys are big fans of Stratosphere. I'm a fan of Y charts. When you go look at Wise on some of those platforms, actually the numbers are a bit of a mess. Um, I think I think um, a lot of these providers are kind of misunderstanding how Wise account for custom balances. So you end up with like kind of crazy negative EV figures and kind of garbage figures of free cash flow. If you go and look at Wise's own numbers, 
Uh, they only, it's a UK company, so they only really give proper accounting every six months. So, um, but in the most recent quarter, so just actually this week, about four or five days ago, they issued a sort of uh, quarterly set of numbers. So over the quarter, they've done volumes of just over 26 billion sterling in total transfers, um, which I guess is how you get to the kind of 4%, uh, 4 to 5% of personal transaction volumes. And on that volume, they, they generated revenues of 225 million pounds. Um, but their total income, I know we'll get into the numbers a bit later in the discussion, the total income was actually higher than the revenue. Uh, so income was 268 million pounds. That's because they're earning us interest income, um, which they're looking for ways to return. Okay. And then on the, uh, I guess one trend that we've kind of seen throughout the business is that they're seeing more penetration with their active customers. Why is this occurring? And then how do you think this impacts the business? Is this theoretically more profitable if, if you're getting engagement out of the existing ones? Um, so I'm going to answer this with a couple of personal anecdotes, but you can probably extrapolate those to, uh, you know, probably the experience of many banking customers. Where are they today? So I guess we're talking about penetration of the number of Wise's customers that actually have a Wise account. So they're using them more than just transferring money they're actually holding balances because that's the kind of crux of the business model it's where it's the types of accounts where wise make the most of their income um so today just over 51 percent of business customers have a wise business account and 30 percent of personal customers have a wise account quite a lot of opportunity still to grow that but those those numbers have increased quite rapidly and the, and the question is you know kind of why why are they getting that increasing penetration? And the, 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 the easy answer is it's just more convenient, much more easy, a more compelling proposition than legacy banks. So here's my two anecdotes from really quite recently. Um, so I'm in Lake Tahoe at the moment doing a ski season. And I wanted just to ship over some kind of walking around money uh, to get my season started. I was sending like $5,000 from my HSBC UK account to my HSBC US account. And I did the math on different ways of transferring it. If I transferred the money out of HSBC to HSBC, or with their no fee transfer, it would have cost me £114 more than what I did, which was transferring the money from my UK account to my WISE account, doing the FX there, and then transferring it WISE to my HSBC US account. Um, you might ask why have I even bothered getting a kind of US account for personal kind of legacy reasons. I happen to have kind of HSBC credit cards in a few different countries and wise don't yet offer a credit card. And I suppose there are some additional consumer protections. That's why I'm not using, that's why I'm using my HSBC card, but I'm using wise to get the money there. And then another random anecdote. Um, so, uh, I've, I've had some property in Spain for a couple of years and for legacy reasons for like two decades or so, I had a bank account with uh, Bank Sabadell and just a pain in the backside to deal with if I'm really awful, if I'm really sort of honest. Uh, they charged me 50 euros a, a quarter just for very basic banking. Um, so it's not cheap. Um, and I actually had a hilarious experience about a month ago when I tried to close my Sabadell account. I'm now using Wise for my managed banking. So, uh, I had to get my account balance to zero so that they could 
execute the kind of account closure workflow and I miscalculated the fees because it was so complex. And I transferred the money to my wise account. I was left with 30 cents. And uh, in a, a one hour conversation with customer support in kind of broken English, Spanish, they couldn't do anything with that 30 cents. They couldn't donate it, couldn't strike it. I had to transfer like 10 euros. So, and then let a spreadsheet figure out exactly how all the fees added up, get it to exactly zero, and then they could close the account. So, you know, just an interesting example of uh, these sort of legacy complex processes that aren't very customer friendly, but a lot of the traditional banks have. And WISE have been able to start from really a clean sheet. Um, it's just a much, much more effective, transparent way of doing banking. Yeah, that anecdote, you know, that's an anecdote, but I think almost every listener will agree that the legacy banks, they are providing a fantastic opportunity for someone with better customer service. I think maybe, you know, we talked about the advantages of regulation where WISE, getting up to WISE's scale for international transfers is very difficult for someone like, you know, your example was Stanford Credit Union, but that can apply to thousands of other institutions. What is preventing them from becoming a bank themselves? Do you think that's their goal? And because you mentioned that they aren't able to offer something like a credit card yet, do you see a world where they could consolidate, say, for example, yourself out of HSBC to entirely a, uh, to be a wise customer and cut them out completely? Like me personally, it's quite a close call um, in making that transition and just kind of doing everything on wise. Um, so they're, I think they're not trying to be bank, um, but they do want to offer like bank-like products to customers. So for example, on the earnings call the other day, they're very clear. They don't ever want to get into making loans. And that's kind of a core part of a traditional banking proposition. Um, and so they're trying to be smart about the various regulatory licenses that they're applying for in you know hundreds of different countries so they can operate um because it's complex and it's expensive to get these and, and maintain these licenses um so they have found interesting kind of workarounds so right now you actually need a i believe you need a, a full banking license to be able to pay interest or wise have found kind of helpful i suppose that it's kind of Definitely in pilot mode right now, where in the UK they're essentially paying interest by allowing you to sort of invest your money in either a government bond, sort of low risk end, slightly higher risk end, you can invest your money in the MSCI World Index. So you're kind of earning an income on those funds. Um, in uh, the EEA in Europe, um, they're piloting giving cash back on balances. It's essentially interest, but by a different term, I guess they found some, uh, you know, language within the banking license they have there that enables them to do that. Um, uh, they've just recently launched a 1% cashback on debit card transactions. If you're a business customer in the UK, certainly the UK is their core market, but they're looking for ways to sort of pilot these various new products and add-ons and capabilities and then roll them out as far as they can. But, but certainly the plan isn't to become like a full, um, you know, full banking service in every country. They're really, it's very specifically around um, stuff to do with international transfers, because that's really their kind of raison d'etre. Who are the competitors in this space? And because uh, there's a lot and um, probably 
the there's there's one in particular that I'm thinking of that I imagine you'll mention. Do you think there's any chance that Wise just gets bought out by a competitor or some sort of a bigger financial institution? Hey, I definitely hope not as a customer and as an investor. I hate to see my really interesting investments get acquired before they can really reach the, the kind of scale that's in my mind in terms of the investment thesis. But who are their customers? So um, like, if you're listening to the podcast, I just encourage you to just go check out wise.com. And I don't know if this is like genius or insanity, but literally on their homepage, uh, when you pop open the page, they show just the default transfer of $1,000 to euros. And then they just rank and stack um, who's the cheapest. And they're not the cheapest on their own homepage. They're like, today, they're in third place behind Remitly and MoneyGram. If you transfer that $1,000 with Wise, then it cost you about, I think, like $12, €12 Euros more. Um, this is their kind of transparency in action. If you play with those um, you know, currency routes and amounts, you'll pretty quickly intuit that Wise are all pretty much always up there in the kind of top three or four, sometimes, you know, sometimes first, sometimes second. Um, and so if, you know, unless you're doing a very consistent currency route, you know, maybe you're working overseas and you're remitting money back home, you might, you might pick a broker that is very cheap for that particular route. But if you're doing like international banking and you're always doing like different stuff, it becomes a bit of a no-brainer to pick wise because it's just simpler having it all in one place. And you know, they're always going to be, you know, almost the best, if not the best. But they do have a bunch of competitors. And if you, if you look at that wise.com, you'll see the list of competitors. So who are the key ones in my mind? Um, probably the behemoth, PayPal. Um, you know, massive customer base, 400 million accounts. Um, but if you look at the cost of PayPal, like go check out the comparison of the rates on wise.com or just, you know, go to PayPal and figure it out yourself with a calculator. It's kind of mind boggling how expensive they are if you do we, we know that's horrible. horrible we know that yeah. we know that pain <laughs> we we know that pain as well yeah yeah it's it's disgusting um western union and moneygram you know also competing for this market uh kind of different business proposition they've got a really large physical footprint you can't go into a wise branch um to take money you have to like find an atm and withdraw it um so I suppose Western Union and MoneyGram are perhaps naming more the needs of the unbanked, but I know MoneyGram are kind of pivoting to more of a digital model, but there's, you know, you've got competition there. I mentioned Remitly, um, you know, they're very cost-effective for certain routes. I think their customers are more, it's more about um, sort of overseas workers sending money from a number of developed countries back to developing countries. So they've optimized their model to make some of those routes cheaper, which is why they're cheaper than wise for some transfers, but certainly not for all. Um, eLocal, another kind of competitor that's more focused into the business world, uh, providing transfer capability to global market merchants, more in emerging markets. Um, one you might not have heard of, um, that's a little more UK centric, but in my mind, perhaps is the, the bigger threat to wise is a bank called Revolut. Um, so I think very similar proposition to Wise. I mean, arguably actually more mature. They've been around for a bit longer. It's more like a traditional bank account with lots of other banking capabilities. Um, but I think if you look at 
depending on how you use the account, uh, if you start to do bigger transfers, the fees start to mount up a little bit. I think there's uh, like additional fees if you send more than thousand pounds a month with with a route. If you transact at a weekend, there's like an additional half percent or one percent fee. I think so. Um, so it can be it could be a better proposition depending on how you do your banking. But if you're doing slightly bigger transfers, Wise is probably the uh, the sort of superior option. And then the other the other main competitor are just all of the traditional legacy banks, you know, the HSBCs and the smaller banks that um, that are potentially offering the same thing. Um, but to me, you know, it's a highly fragmented market, and uh, Wise are still small and growing, but just an incredibly compelling proposition. So, um, you know, they have got competition, but I think they've really doing quite a leading spot right now. Yeah, and this may seem like an obvious one, but does the does their focus and it kind of reminds me, and maybe Netflix is on the brain because their report was earlier of how focusing on one thing and having that being your priority versus your competitors being your fifth priority. Do you think that is an advantage for them and is why they're succeeding? And, and do you see that continuing in the future? Because the one, I guess in my mind, the one concern would be, and I don't think this has happened, is if the legacy players kind of get their act together quicker than maybe people assume and they level the playing field. But do you think that likely is impossible because of that lack of focus? I, I, I spent 25 years working for global bank for working for HSBC. I've said that elsewhere. Um, it's quite hard uh, for one of these big global banks. You think they have these enormous capital reserves and um, you know, it's enormous customer base to lean on. It's incredibly complicated to be agile and to really serve your, your a modern customer's needs in an effective way. Like even something stupid, if I want to connect with, say I have some sort of issue, like a fraud uh, alert, or I just want to talk to my bank. It's quite difficult to talk to HSBC. If I'm overseas, I've actually phoned them. I, you know, try and do stuff through the online portal. Can't get a lot done because there's not the right level of authorizations. You have to phone them. I have to phone them internationally. The phone call, I can't talk to them over like WhatsApp. I can't video them. Um, when you get a smaller player, like these, all of the fintechs, but wise included, they're just, they've been able to kind of redevelop their model from the ground up or modern. Uh, consumer needs, and it's just much more flexible. Um, and these, you know, the, the the traditional banks are mired in, um, you know, regulation and complexity. It's very hard, even just to keep the lights on. You know, keep the bank operating. This is, certainly isn't unique to HSBC. It's across the industry. Um, just complying with the rapidly changing regulatory environment in all the countries in which you operate. It's very complicated. It's very expensive doesn't really give you much of a chance to think about actually how do we make the customer experience better. So, you know, many of these banks would like to um, start with a clean slate and launch their own kind of neo banks. I think that's an initiative that's sort of succeeding in potted ways. But, you know, I think Wise, um, well, they, they almost invented this model of transfers without actually transferring the money. And then uh, that's given them quite a head start. Maybe if we sort of take that a loop back to, I think, the question you asked a minute or two, Ryan, um, about, you know, could they be a buyout candidate? You know, could one of these other legacy banks want to kind of snag them? I'm sure it's quite attractive. Um, but if you look at the sort of ownership structure, um, Wise was founded by um, 
Harvitt Hinrichus and uh, Chris O'Carman. Like, uh, Harvitt's no longer formally with the company, but between them, they own pretty substantial stock holding. I think sort of over 25% of the company. Um, so they've got a relatively strong controlling interest uh, right now. So that would make it more difficult for um, another firm to sort of need get and snag them. It's the founders are on board with that idea. Okay, this kind of this question has just now come to mind. But how was Wise impacted by COVID? My my kind of thought here is that in international travel kind of ground to a halt. And that as we, and we've probably seen it already to some extent, uh, international travel kind of revives that we would see more and more adoption. Is that, has that played out in any way? Well, their, their revenues have grown pretty consistently uh, and, as the, and their income. And they've only they've been a public company since 2021. So probably can't give a really kind of clear picture through the pandemic period. Um, I think what you're what you're what you're sort of leading into there is like there is a risk. Um, like we're out of the pandemic now. I guess potentially we're going into a recessionary environment. And if we do go into a kind of a full global recession, well, that's probably going to hurt wise and well the whole banking sector. People will be spending less, traveling less, transacting less. So that that could be an impact in the future. What are the most common corridors i guess like is it is it mostly inside of europe transfers or is it like uk all the way to the us like in your example do you know they don't break it out but um depending on uh exactly which product you're looking at they you can uh you can have a bank account in sort of formal banking details i think in 10 different currencies um you can hold money, I think, in sort of 70 or 80 different currencies. And then you can send money to, I think, 170, 180 different currencies. Went down a little bit, actually, because um, with the situation in Ukraine and yes, yeah, sort of sanctions against Russia. So actually, a number of, uh, well, across the industry, a number of currencies have been sort of delisted, but, um, but it's pretty comprehensive. They, do, they don't share details of kind of which are the, the, uh, the sort of higher transacting routes, but you can probably guess it's going to be, you know, sort of euro, dollar, sterling, Aussie dollar, that sort of thing. Right. And they do have, for anyone interested on their presentations, they have a good chart of what their more mature product offerings are across the world. And you can see that I believe the UK is the most mature and they're working to have places like the United States get closer over time. But if you're in the United States, you actually don't have as much capabilities as you win the United Kingdom yet. Um, exactly. But, but they're adding stuff like I think in the most recent quarter, they've just added physical debit cards in the US, whereas you, you could just have like a virtual card. Um, so they're definitely pushing to try and have a more entire proposition in all the countries they operate in. Right. And one more thing before we get to the management, and I think anyone listening will, will talk about that uh, issue that the founder had as well. But one more small thing. How much of an impact do interest rates have on this business? Because you talked about the benefit of higher interest rates. But I, I just wonder about the positives and the potential negatives there. Is, are they a bit subject to what the, inter, the, the central banks do? Or is it just kind of a smaller part that investors shouldn't care about too much? Um, it's become important in the most recent couple of quarters. I think they've been surprised by how much interest income they're earning. It's now actually quite material to their earnings, that 43 million sterling in the last quarter. 
Um, it's very hard for any bank to make any money in the incredibly low interest rate environment we've had for the last decade almost. Um, uh, you know, all, all banks were kind of skirting along. And so if you listen to their CFO's commentary just a year ago, he described interest income as not being kind of core to their mission. Now, suddenly we're in a higher rate environment, which could persist for a while. So all banks, including Wise, suddenly are making interest income on their deposit. Wise are striving to return those to customers in some way. Quite a nice comment from Matt Breyers on the earnings call this week, uh, kind of throwaway comment in response to an analyst question. And he said, we charge what we need to, not what we can get away with. And I think that's quite, that's quite a, uh, very sort of clear insight into his thinking about that transparency and that kind of customer centric approach and the mission to, you know, win by offering the lowest cost, most convenient product to their customers. Yeah, they're, they're going to have so much consumer surplus for sure. If you look up the management online, if you just Google their management team to try to do some research, you're going to see that the founder, and I don't know if it's uh, confirmed or allegedly, but you can explain it, uh, evaded taxes. Do you think this can have an impact on the business? Are you watching that? Do you think it's important? Uh, yes, to all of those. Um, so what do we know? Because it's still actually a bit of an open investigation. What do we know? So um, co-founder Christo Carmen was fined £365,000. So a personal fine, nothing to do with the, custom, with the company. And that was for deliberately evading tax in 2017, 2018. Um, and this, uh, so there's probably a couple of possible interpretations here. We don't actually know. Uh, you know, the true answer, but it's still, the investigation is still ongoing. So, but one thing the UK regulator did, and it's an incredibly strong regulator, um, they, they took the additional step of naming and shaming him as a deliberate defaulter. There's actually a list. You go to the FCA website and you can see the, you know, sort of, you know, the most heinous, uh, examples of tax evasion. You know, this is normally a list of, um, you know, wholesalers of dubious goods and second-hand car dealers. But Christo Carmen was on that list for a period of time. Um, so you've got to wonder why they did that. Um, so either he has sort of deliberately, materially misstated his personal income, um, or possibly, and maybe this is you know the most um, sort of uh, happy interpretation of the situation, he's just been incredibly disorganized and has failed to submit his tax returns properly, despite you know presumably multiple warnings. So, you know, either incredibly disorganised back then, or he's been unethical. And you know, neither of them are good. But clearly, if he did unethically, it's much more significant for the company that he's the CEO. Um, now we've got to remember, Wise wasn't a public company at that time. That was sort of three or four years before they went public, and. It's not out of the question that he was managing his finances and his tax returns personally. And so, uh, you know, one of the steps the company has taken is to ensure that, uh, you know, he now has a personal accountant. So maybe the implication of that is that he didn't before. I don't know. Um, so, um, but the FCA are looking into this. So it's not that the fine has been paid. The, you know, the company were hoping to move on but about six months ago. The UK regulator opened their own invested into the matter and they're seeking to determine 
is he a fit and proper person to serve as a CEO of a publicly listed company? And they do have the power to force him to step down as CEO. So if they determine that, um, you know, there was something unethical or that, you know, they're just not happy with the way the matter's been handled, they could cause a force him to step down. And that could be significant for the company because, you know, he's the remaining Fernanda. Um, you know, I think their CFO is incredibly strong. Um, and they've also recently recruited David Wells, who's the CFO of Netflix. Um, and I think, you know, bet between the CFO and David Wells, you've got a, actually a very strong team there anyway. There's no arguing if, if Christo Carmen was forced to step down, that would be an impact. Yeah, I was, I was about to ask about that was because it kind of pops out. I think anytime you see someone who worked in the executive suite at Netflix, it's usually a bright spot just given sort of what people know about the culture there. Um, what do you think about that move? What do you think it kind of brings to the table? And do you think it's, I think I probably know your answer, but do you think that's a positive sign for uh, wise shareholders to take away? No doubt in my mind, actually, in, in some ways, almost a key part of the investment thesis, because I think it says something about the company's aspirations um, and their potential that they were able to uh, secure someone of David Wills's caliber. Now, if we, were, if we sort of think back on what he did with Reed Hastings, you know, ton of experience operating and scaling disruptive companies. And in partnership with Reed, you know, they built Netflix from an $8 billion to a $400 billion company, like a 50X during um, David Wells' tenure as CFO. So like the guy's got the chops, he's got the experience to scale a company like that. The fact that Wise have gone after him, I think tells us that they have similar aspirations. And the fact that he took the job, you know, he's been on, he's been a non-executive director of the company since 2019. He's now the chairman um, as of about a year ago. Um, you know, I think that that is quite interesting in terms of where he thinks they could get to. Now, we haven't talked about the market cap yet or the valuation. We want to hit this quick. I know it's tough for a company like this that's still growing quickly and maybe isn't at their full margin potential. But if I'm looking today, Yahoo Finance could be wrong, but their market cap is about $5.8 billion. And that could be in uh, pounds as well. But what do you think about the valuation? What, what sort of, I guess, how do you look at it as someone, uh, you know, they're, they're investing for a long runway for growth, but how do you look at it as an investor? Um, it is a little bit tricky. Um, so their the market cap is about 5.8 billion sterling, which is just over $7 billion. Um, and it's, it's a bit hard to kind of unpick the enterprise value, but kind of price to sales for about eight. Um, uh, so it's hard with any small growth company like this that's, that's really quite early in its story. You know, if we think about, you know, less than 5% of personal customer volumes, less than 1% of business customer volumes. With such an incredibly compelling proposition, I do think they've got significant growth opportunity ahead of them. Um, they, will, they, they manage the company very prudently. So they're already um, the net in income positive generated what $269 million of net income in the most recent quarter, up 80% year over year. You know, substantial growth, um, and it's early in that story. And then in, the, in this week, they also increased their forecasts for the, this current full year, which ends next quarter. Um, 
they're expecting total income growth of about 70% um, and sort of driving a, a north of 20% FIDA in the EBITDA over the kind of medium term. And I, I have sort of high confidence that they'll achieve that. They're running the company in a very prudent manner. Um, so, so, yeah, it's a little difficult to make strong forecasts about whether that's a fair valuation. I think they almost certainly are fairly valued at the moment. Um, but I think with that growth potential, and it seems to me quite a, a relatively lower risk investment, given, you know, even the maturity of the company, it's still quite a young company. Um, uh, yeah, I, I have a pretty high conviction in this one in my own portfolio. Okay, last question is the question we always try to end with, which is the pre-mortem. How could an investment in WISE go wrong at these prices? Uh, so a couple of key concerns, I suppose. Um, and we've touched on a few of them already. You know, if we go into a recession, that is going to hurt their numbers. They've got a they've got a ton of kind of their own money. They're quite well capitalized. I think something like 400, over 400 million pounds of their own money, not just customer deposits. And uh, it's sort of not a huge amount of debt. So they've got, they've got plenty of room to sort of absorb the recessionary environment. Um, but that could impact growth over the kind of medium term. We touched on the actions against the CEO. If Carmen is forced to set, step down, that could hurt the culture, could set the company back, albeit maybe that's mitigated to some extent by the rest of the leadership team. Um, you know, we're in a, quite a volatile macro environment. Um, Wise do have to hold these sort of local liquidity pools. You know, they've got their own allocations of various currencies. If they get that wrong, you know, they could be caught short by rapid FX movements. You know, that could damage their profitability. I think in fact has actually helped them over the last couple of quarters, but that could turn the other way. Um, and then it's actually it's difficult to get the banking licenses they need. So it is expensive and complicated. They're pursuing that. But in some countries, it's quite hard to access the national payments infrastructure. So regulators don't make it easy for new entrants. Um, and they might just find that, you know, some countries, they can't get the, the licenses they want to be able to operate the proposition they want. So, you know, maybe growth, the terminal growth, you know, might be a bit closer than they would hope. But, um, yeah, but if I look at all of this in the round, together with um, the sort of caliber of the team, the financials, and where they are against their, um, you know, their potential and the TAM, this kind of adds up for me personally as a pretty strong kind of risk versus reward play. Okay, I think that's all the questions Brett and I have. Um, we we always try to give listeners a way to follow uh, our guess. So what's the best place to do that? I know I'm going to go ahead and shameless plug again, seven investing because you have your recommendation each month. Um, but any other resources? Yeah, if you want to find me directly, I'm, uh, spend most of my time on Twitter. So I'm at seven Luke allowed. Um, and then, uh, we've also got our own podcast series, uh, on the seven investing podcast. I'm running a, a regular fortnightly series with a colleague, Christoph, where we just talk about Kind of everything and anything poker investing ai technology related so if you're interested in checking that out and hearing a bit more from me go find me at the seven investing podcast or youtube channel 
Awesome. All right. Well, that's going to do it. Uh, we should end this thing with the disclosure. We want to remind listeners that Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital, so clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Luke, once again for coming on the show, and we'll see you all next time. Okay, I'm welcomed by the founder of our exclusive sponsor, Stratosphere.io, uh, Braden Dennis. Braden, welcome. I wanted to basically give listeners that are interested in Stratosphere more context around what the platform is. So let's start there. What is Stratosphere? And then why did you decide to start it? Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And I'm glad to be sponsoring the podcast as, as a listener myself. I like the deep dives. I like the different guests, the different perspectives on uh, some interesting companies. So I think it's a good concept for a podcast, which is kind of what led me down to making Stratosphere in the first place, which was I was making content online and frustrated with the tools that were available to me. So I started building uh, a very scrappy version of the product just for free, just to figure out like, how can I overlay 10 years of financial side by side you know, up to 35 years we have now? And how can I actually build out a proper database of, of company KPIs that are not just revenue, but like, if you're looking at like Costco, like how many warehouses do they have? How many paid members are, are in like our Costco members? Or, you know, if I want to do a comp against like the streaming, like how many Netflix subs versus uh, HBO plus discovery plus, no Disney plus, like how do I build out proper comps of those? Because those are the metrics that actually move the business. Those are the ones that actually move the needle more than any like gap financial metric you'll find. And so it started off as just purely a passion project. And I figured let's just make the leap into entrepreneurship and uh, see where it goes. And, you know, it brought, brought us here today. Yeah. And like you mentioned, it, it is the stuff that you can't find anywhere else, at least not in a, I mean, you could find it page by page and on their financials. Exactly. But. You can go through 35 uh, PDF filings and find it, be, be my guest. And, and, that, and that's basically what we did for a long time. So what do, I guess, maybe describe the pricing model so people know, sure. but uh, you're going to say it, it, there's there's a free platform. What do free users get? Yeah, good good thing. Cause our, our mission was to always build a free platform. And and so we really kept true to our mission and give like an amazing platform for free, which gives you 10 years of financial statements on 40,000 global securities. So we don't list you just to US securities, it's on global stocks. We give you a watch list, the screener, comparisons on competitors, fundamental charting up to 10 years filings, transcripts. You can look at the press releases right inside the app, news, ETFs, funds, super investors, hedge fund letters, investor holdings, and financial calendars. Those are all the features you'll get on uh, on the free tier. Now, if on, on the, the middle tier, the personal tier, you're going to unlock up to 35 years of financials and just kind of like nice to have, like quality of life, like notifications being built in. Um, price targets for building models, uh, like business owner mode where you can hide prices, like kind of like just that next level for, for individual investors who want to level up. 
And then the the top tier is for like investment teams and professionals who want to unlock that KPI data and request KPI coverage as well. Like a firm will be like, here, we want these 10 names in our coverage and in your coverage. And then you'll have basically our, our entire universe that we're looking at, which is great, right? Because like earnings season comes around and we have it updated within 15 minutes when Netflix comes out with their net subscriber ads, like it's right there in one place, uh, especially easy to handle around the, the peak of earnings season that, that matters a lot for these people. And so we have a, a premium tier for that as well. That's the, that's the three plans that are available today. And now a perfect time to shameless plug our code. If you use CCM, you get 15% off any of the paid plans, but I think that covers it pretty well. Uh, if you're interested, please go ahead and check out stratosphere.io. We'll, we'll have a link in the uh, description as well, but uh, thank you, Brayden, for joining us. Ryan, keep it up. I really like what you and Brad are doing and uh, I'll be listening along.